Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, me and Will are here to make you laugh. More than you usually are. Hell yeah. We're, we're, t- we're talking about failed comedians. Yeah. Well, not necessarily failed comedians, because a lot of these people that we're talking about were successful in like a smaller capacity, but when they finally made it to the big leagues and got a feature film to star in, that's when it tanked. And I'm very, I'm just very fascinated by this genre, because when you see a movie that stars a comedian where it was their only big starring role, and it was clearly like primed to be the movie that launches them to Jim Carrey level superstardom, like... It just has an extra layer of sadness to it. It's like it's like a stairway to nowhere. <laughs> I think it's really important because isn't sadness the real root of all comedy? I think so. I mean, sadness is really... Well, I don't know if it's the root of all comedy, but it's def- sadness and funniness are definitely two sides to the same coin. So the movies that we watched today were Fred Allen's Big Break, a 40s radio comedian, It's in the Bag. Followed by three uh, more recent talents... Uh, the Norm Macdonald film Dirty Work, the Chris Kattan vehicle Corky Romano, and <laughs> yeah, and of course the, the movie that made Justin sick. Yep. And uh, finally, of course, uh, Mr. Tom Green's singular vision, Freddy Got Fingered. So let's talk about the one that no one has ever heard of first. Well, I yeah, I picked um, Fred Allen's It's in the Bag, which is a movie from 1945, uh, because I've always had a soft spot for Fred Allen, and because I owned the Blu-ray, because I was so tickled to death by the fact that somebody put a Fred Allen movie on Blu-ray. Fred Allen's been almost completely for Forgotten, but in his day, he was a radio star, kind of on the level of Jack Benny, Bob Hope, one of the really big ones. And where you knew him from were from his writings. I, I knew him from his writings. I have a few of his books. He has a memoir called Treadmill to Oblivion that's really enjoyable. But I think he's most remembered, if he's remembered at all, for his famous, like, 20-year-long feud with Jack Benny on the radio. I mean, of course, they were friends in real life. I guess his big claim to fame, too, at the time was the fact that he was the most sophisticated of the radio comedians. And you mean that his stereotypes that he had on his show, <laughs> which was called Alan's Alley, were particularly pointed? Well, uh, James Thurber, the great American humorist, wrote that you can count on the thumb of one hand the American who is at once a comedian, a humorist, a wit, and a satirist, and his name is Fred Allen. And yeah, the show Texaco Star Theater, which had this segment, Alan's Alley, was kind of like the the Prairie Home Companion of its day. Have you ever listened to the Prairie Home Companion? Yeah, I don't. I don't like it. Okay, does but anybody? I think some like old liberals probably <laughs> like it. But Fred Allen was kind of like a Mark Twain type. He would mm. tell. He was. He was a very like talented wordsmith. A vinyl cafe, if you will. <laughs> And he used to, you know, tell a lot of political jokes, but on Allen's Alley, he would go to this uh, fictional neighborhood and talk to the, uh, I guess, working class ethnic stereotypes who lived there. Where, while we were watching It's in the Bag, we got a little bit of taste of that kind of humor. And as we pointed out, it's not really about the jokes. It's about the funny accent that you can do. Yeah, there's this totally non sequitur scene when Fred, like, knocks on a lady's door and, and she has this uh, very heavy Eastern European accent. And she, and I don't there are 12 Nussbaums in our family, and Father Nussbaum, and uh, There's no jokes Nussbaum. in the scene. No jokes at all, and she... <laughs> Alright, we should say right off the bat, it's in the bag, not very funny. Yeah, I was disappointed. I was really hoping for kind of like an undiscovered classic. I was hoping for a film that Will had watched and went, oh, it's pretty good, but maybe if we give it another watch, it will be even better. But what I learned while we were watching it was that Will had told me he had seen this already on Blu-ray, but specifically had watched the first 20 minutes and given up. (laughs) Yeah, but I thought, well, maybe there was something wrong with me, because... I would say the first 20 minutes are probably the strongest part of the movie. Yeah, well, (laughs) I I mean, there are, like, a couple of fleeting moments here and there that I think, like, could have been good. Let's talk a bit about Fred Allen, though, because... His performance. Yeah, I mean, Fred Allen, you know, was a a great radio comedian. He has... His voice is a a beautiful instrument. It's this kind of nasally, almost kind of like Norm MacDonald-sounding voice. And in person, he looks like an angry older man that you wouldn't want to mess with. I heard George Burns interviewed once when he said that the problem with Fred Allen, the reason why he was never able to transition into movies or into television... 
uh, where everyone else did, was because his face was so bad. And people... He looks like kind of withered down version of Shemp. Yeah. Well, well, George Burns said that like when people heard his kind of like cynical biting humor and they heard his nasally voice, they just thought in their head that, well, there's got to be like a nice face to go along with it to like soften it a bit. But nope, he had a face that matched his voice and his sense of humor. And the other thing about It's in the Bag is that it's not a good movie. Like it doesn't even really matter what he's that, doing. It's nice it. that we're digging up this movie just to bury it. But, <laughs> but here's the plot. The plot will be from Familiar to anybody who has seen the Mel Brooks film, The Twelve Chairs, mm-hmm. which we haven't. Nope. Uh, but uh, Fred plays a flea circus manager who real- unexpectedly inherits $12 million. But then he finds out, oh, I actually didn't inherit $12 million. My, my great uncle's fortune was lost. What I did inherit were five chairs. But then when he gives away the chairs, he learns that one of the chairs had $300,000 stuffed in it. So that leads to a madcap chase to to find the money. Madcap? I think you're being pretty generous. Where Fred Allen, the only joy we really got out of this film is where there'd be this mildly amusing bit would happen and Fred Allen's double take would look oh, like... Fred Allen's face... First of all, he's got a bad face. Yeah. But then... So often in this movie, he does this reaction shot where his eyes bug out. And Imagine like, like Don Knotts. And and the way that the director shoots his reaction shots, it, like it will cut to Fred, and then he'll his face will be normal, and then and then his eyes will bug out. It'll just hold that expression for a few <laughs> seconds, and then it'll cut back to the main scene. If we want to share a little bit of positivity about this film, it does have a pretty amusing opening credits. Okay, the opening credits is all downhill from there, but it starts with Fred Allen directly addressing the camera. Uh, kind of doing a mystery science theater like uh, riffing on the opening credits saying something like a look at all these names what do these names mean you can see these names in any phone book yeah oh that's just the producer's nephew that's why he gets to direct that picture and and like it kind of hypes you up because you think oh like this will be a madcap hell's a poppin style comedy we're gonna see a lot of fourth wall breaking oh and we do we do but it's like interspersed throughout (laughs) and it's really lame but I guess the comic high point what would have been perceived as the comic high point of this movie at the time was the the Jack Benny cameo. Mm-hmm. Um, Playing Jack Benny himself. Fred Allen, because Jack has bought one of the chairs, uh, Fred Allen comes in posing as the president of the Jack Benny fan club, but he keeps, he keeps kind of negging him through the whole scene. He keeps saying things like, well, there are only 12 members of the Jack Benny fan club. Oh, you're trying to keep the riffraff out? Nope. If we left the riffraff out, we'd only have three members. You know, I feel this is a good dynamic. I'm really the Jack Benny of our duo, and you're the Fred Allen. <laughs> this scene, watching it, you know... Um, oh, it's paced so slowly. I know. Like, That's its big problem. If you listen to any of the radio bits they do, it's very, like, wham-bam, like, back and forth. And here they, like, walk over to a chair, they sit down, they get back up. The whole conceit of the sequence is that Jack Benny is very um, shallow and money-hungry, where he decides, oh, you know what? I'll give one of my neckties to the Jack Benny fan club, but I'm going to charge you exactly what I paid for it. Plus sales tax, yeah. which is kind of a funny gag, but all the all the funny bits are just paced so poorly mm-hmm. with these huge dry stretches. Actually, I think the best gag in the movie, though, is when Fred tries to hang up his coat in the closet and he opens the closet and sees a coat check girl in Jack Benny's closet. Which he then ogles. <laughs> and I think that's where we got the big reaction shot. It was like, whoa, with his eyes. Because, yeah, there's a point of view shot from Fred where he, you know, fr- which goes down to the woman's legs. And it's clear, as, as you said when we were watching it, Fred fucks. <laughs> yep. I, but this scene is also great because put yourself in the mind of the 1940s audience watching this this scene. It would have been like De Niro and Pacino in Heat. Like, <laughs> yep. here it is, the big clash of the titans, Fred Allen and Jack Benny. <laughs> and, and also, just seeing them in person kind of, I think, takes away some of the magic of the radio broadcast. Because you're looking at them, it's like, oh, here are two middle-aged dads in suits. They, yep. they look kind of old and weary. This is a real dad's movie where everyone is <laughs> over 50, except, of course, the women, which are half Fred Allen's age that he's married to. The movie has a lot of cameos by then-relevant celebrities. Uh, Robert Benchley is in it, Rudy Valley. <laughs> all uh, my favorites. <laughs> uh, yeah, all the, all, all the kids love them. <laughs> all right. Now that we've had some bad times, let's move on to some goods. Uh, it's Norm MacDonald in Dirty Work. Now, I think we said last episode that me and Will have a very large love for Norm MacDonald. I think he's, like, maybe the funniest living man. You think so? Yeah, I think so. Now, I don't have that much experience with him other than when I was in 
college at Algonquin in Ottawa that one of my teachers was Norm Macdonald's best friend and he just would not stop talking about him. Oh, wow. He even had like old home video footage of him and Norm hanging out. Was this a SNL era? No, this was probably the mid-2000s. So very post-Norm being in anything that was very relevant. And, and also culture. kind of pre his current like resurgence yes. as, a, as a beloved figure. Because like Norm Macdonald did host the Canadian Screen Awards last year. Yeah, and he's, he has a best-selling biography out now. And I just just hear him talked about a lot do you think so that he's getting back into popular consciousness I, th- I think so definitely and i think like youtube has helped him because all of his great like talk show appearances are now widely circulated i mean the famous the uh, famous, conan o'brien yeah when when there's the woman on who's in the carrot top movie <laughs> yeah. or the clip that probably made me a fan of him more than anything was his appearance at the bob saget comedy central rose i haven't seen that one well he, all he did was just like read from a card like old jokes so he would say <laughs> something like Cloris Leachman is here. Cloris, <laughs> Cloris, they say you're over the hill, but you'll never be over the hill. Not in the car you drive. <laughs> or, uh, or Gilbert Gottfried's uh, neck is like a typewriter. Underwood. <laughs> and he just did that for... Like, like straight. <laughs> yeah, straight. And the audience is baffled, but it, like, it keeps cutting to the comedians laughing their asses off. Well, I guess Norm Macdonald is one of those comedians' comedians, right? Oh, yeah. I saw him live, I think, a year or two ago. He was only supposed to do an hour, but he did two hours. Wow. And what I loved about it, too, was... To the extent that Norm could bear his soul on stage, it felt there was felt something about kind of like dangerous about it. Like I would you say, think he was going to go like a little too far. Well, into I felt personal re- revelations. Well, he would just ramble on and on about the most depressing topics. Like at one point, somebody heckled him. Somebody in the audience said he was telling too much morbid stuff, which is like insane. Yeah, what are you doing in a Norm Macdonald? And, so, and so then Norm Macdonald says, "Ah, you don't like any, you don't like the morbid jokes. So how about I tell." Some more morbid jokes. <laughs> and then he launched into this long routine about what he would do if he were going to kill himself. Really? Like, well, first I'd go to the to the rope store, and I'd buy a rope. And then I'd go to the rickety stool store, and I'd buy a rickety stool. And he would just kind of ramble on and on and eventually kind of, like, slide his way into a punchline. I would say, like, maybe... 20% of the audience walked out. Wow. But those of us who stayed, like, knew that we were watching art. Well, so, Norm Macdonald is most famous for being on SNL and doing the Weekend Update bit. Classic. He did it for a few years, and uh, me and Will were talking about it, and Will being an SNL um, expert, mm-hmm. aficionado, if you will, yes, uh, mentioned that Norm would not hang out. Even for the rest of the show, he would just leave. He would never be in the closing goodbyes when they're all hugging on stage. And also, he was apparently a very divisive figure in the offices. So, uh, I mean, there are stories of him ragging on Chris Kattan. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Someone we're going to talk about a little bit later. (laughs) And um, he finally got his chance to star in a film called Dirty Work. Directed by Bob Saget. Directed, I think, perfectly by Bob Saget. I mean, it's an absolutely just like rock bottom functional looking film, but that's exactly what it needs to be. And it's a pure norm movie. Like he had writers that wrote with him on SNL. Um, he stars with Artie Lang, which feels like a perfect Norm best friend buddy. Yeah. Chevy Chase is in it, and yep. Don Rickles, who are two obvious influences on him. That kind of, uh, you know, Chevy Chase's ironic Zen detachment. <laughs> <laughs> and the plot is a very kind of convoluted 90s comedy well, plot. Uh, Norm MacDonald is a guy who has grown up uh, proud of the fact that he doesn't, take, he doesn't take shit from anyone. Yep. Um, and he and his friend Artie Lang realize that after being fired from so many jobs, what they're really talented at is revenge for hire stuff. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which leads to all sorts of shenanigans. I mean, the movie kind of takes the form of just like an Adam Sandler movie. It has it has all the things in it that you would expect from like a mid to, a mid nineties. Well, like, Norm Macdonald, for people that don't know, is part of that Happy Madison Adam Sandler family, having cameos in almost all of Adam Sandler's most popular movies yeah. and his less popular ones, Grown Ups. But um, Nathan Rabin in his My Year of Flops review uh, posited that Dirty Work is an example of the ironic dumb comedy, which he uh, defined as the slyly postmodern lowbrow gag fest that so lustily, nakedly embraces and exposes the machinations and conventions of stupid laughers that it becomes sort of sublime. Wow, this movie is so funny. Oh my god, I... <laughs> 
I mean, it's endlessly quotable. How did this movie not become a hit with, like, people our age around that time? It's only 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's insane to me. And I don't know what to tell people except that, like, it's it's really funny. <laughs> and it's filled with a lot of um, rape jokes. <laughs> yeah, and, and gay jokes. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you know, homophobia has been a recurring theme throughout Norm's entire career. But I think... I don't think it comes in the spirit of mal- of malevolence, no, per I don't se. Think so. Like, he's just, like, a, a, a little boy who's, like, fascinated by what he perceives as, like, the kind of grossness of it. And just <laughs> his delivery and some off-the-cuff lines that come out of nowhere. Like, when he's walking with a girl and she's like, hey, do you want to go do something later? And he's like, oh, no, I have to go lift weights. What? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, getting back to what Nathan Rabin said about the movie, about how it, it's about the, you know, the conventions of the genre... Like, he'll say so many things that are just kind of like, the premise of the movie is so stupid and artificial, mm-hmm. and he'll say things to underline how stupid and artificial it is. So, like, when he's pranking this frat by having uh, cops, like, do a raid on it, he first he calls the frat and says, uh, hey, there are some fake cops in the neighborhood. And then he calls the real cops and says, hello, real cops? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just endlessly great lines like, uh, note to self. Learn to fight. <laughs> yep. And a lot of that 90s slapstick of him being thrown through the air in a garbage can and stuff like that. Uh, even though Norm is like this kind of like Bugs Bunny figure, it also finds room for the aggressive stylings of Chris Farley. Oh, yeah. Playing a man whose <laughs> nose was bitten off by a Saigon hooker. <laughs> but I think Norm MacDonald has described his comedy as being devoted to erasing all of the cleverness of a joke. So that you basically just have, like, the raw impact of well, it. Well, he's always viewed himself more as a writer than a performer. Yeah, but he he's not somebody who likes uh, aggressive cleverness, mm-hmm. and, and he, he doesn't like the response to be witty. So he said in interviews that his favorite Weekend Update joke is when he said, Lyle Lovett and Julia Roberts have divorced. The reason? He is Lyle Lovett, <laughs> and she is Julia Roberts. Or there's... There's another one when, you know, he did so many O.J. Simpson jokes. Yeah. So, like, after after O.J. Simpson was acquitted, he did a joke that was, now that he's released, O.J. promises to get back to doing what he does best, killing people. <laughs> <laughs> but as a very clever transition to link our next comedian that we're going to talk about, Chris Kattan. Love him. That there's a famous bit where Pamela Anderson appeared as the guest host on SNL. Mm-hmm. And Chris Kattan, as some sources have said, really wanted to fuck her. <laughs> so Norm was like screwing up one of his lines or something like that, or giving it like a low energy performance while they were doing the dress rehearsal for the show. And Chris Kattan just wouldn't let off of him. Yeah. Oh my God, Norm, do it right, do it right. And supposedly this went on and on and on until moments before the show went live on air, Norm went in with... Hey, Pam, uh, did you know Chris Kattan's gay? And he won't admit to himself that he's gay? I don't know why he doesn't just admit the truth and stop living a lie. And then it went right to air. (laughs) (laughs) And Chris Kattan, in the classic 2001 film Corky Romano, is obviously gay. His character. Yeah, I think he's like... If this were, like, a studio-era film, he would be, like, Edward Everett Horton. He would be a character who's, like, coded as gay. And yeah. Except he's, like, the romantic lead of the film. <laughs> Yeah, there's never... Other than the way that he acts and reacts to situations, nobody makes any reference to it. But, you know, the odd thing is, his brother in the film, played by Chris Penn, is gay. He's mm-hmm. a closeted gay character. Was that included, do you think, to, you know... Take it, the, the, the focus away from Chris Kattan's performance? Be- I think it might have actually been, because you remember in Mrs. Doubtfire, they gave Robin Williams Harvey Firestein as his brother. Just to kind of... Basically be like, hey... Li- hey, he's not gay, yeah. you know. Just because he he's dressed as a woman. woman. Yeah. But, I mean, his performance in this film, uh, Chris Kattan... Well, I don't know. What's the movie about? So, Chris Kattan <laughs> plays Corky Romano, which, as the posters love to say, the whole advertising campaign... Who is Corky Romano? To which most moviegoers were happy not knowing the answer, apparently. Well, you know, they tried to go for that Gabbo, Gabbo, Gabbo (laughs) angle, but it didn't really work out. Who is Corky Romano? Corky Romano is the son of a mafia boss played by Peter Falk. Very sadly, on the doors of death. Poor Peter Falk. And the brother of noted Republican and director of The Rundown, Peter Berg, <laughs> and the sadly departed Chris Penn. Yeah. And also, um, Fred Ward is there. Yeah, Fred Ward is like... Uh, the bad guy. Yeah, he's yeah he's the bad guy. 
<laughs> the, um, the accountant for yeah. the family. He's the one who causes the whole setup. Spoiler. And for some unbelievable reason, they decide that Koiki Romano has to go undercover as an FBI agent and get like a dossier that gives the information that they have on his father. It's basically The Departed. Yes. <laughs> Just uh, as funny as The Departed. Uh, I, like, was in the fetal position watching this movie. It was so painful to watch. <laughs> and we had just watched together It's in the Bag. And that was pretty bad. Well, It's in the Bag was, like, kind of slow. <laughs> yeah. And we were looking at each other like, oh, God, well, at least Corky Romano will pick it up after this. Like, it's going to be crazy enough that we're going to be able to laugh. And we did laugh. <laughs> there were several moments when we laughed. <gasps> Mostly involving butts and farts. <laughs> Let's be honest. What's, what's the first big moment? Uh, Peter Berg just turns and farts in Koki Romano's face. <laughs> and we were like two insane people just laughing uncontrollably. It's because when a movie moment like that happens in a movie like this, when you're you're like, it's like a desert. And then when a and funny moment comes. But it's not even a funny moment. It's like, it feels like a post-production note that they added a fart in. There's another scene where Chris Kattan like waves his ass right at the camera. And, Will is like, I need a photo of this. And he made us watch it three times. This scene where Corky Romano's trying to fart in Peter Berg's face. I guess it's a callback. Yeah. You know, See, really this movie well is good. Yeah. So this movie is an entry in a genre that I will informally call the funny guy comedy. <laughs> It's kind of, I mean, it harkens back to like Jerry Lewis, right? But I mean, it real the genre was really kickstarted again by Jim Carrey, which is mm. just a guy who he doesn't necessarily even say funny jokes or anything. He's just like a, a really wacky, funny guy who comes into a room and, and just crashes into d- everything. That, and the whole movie is just reaction shots of people looking at him. I mean, there there were so many funny guy comedies in the '90s. Uh, you know, I don't know, like Harlan Williams in Rocket Man mm-hmm. would be an example, or. Uh, I don't know, like, uh, any, actually any of the, like, Inspector Clouseau movies yeah. from, from before then would be a funny guy comedy. All those Alan Arkin classics. I f- yeah. <laughs> or Steve Martin. Yeah, that's uh, right. I feel like uh, the funny guy comedy has kind of, like, gone out of fashion lately, don't you think? I, I can't think of any. Not really, because the Judd Apatow form of comedy has kind of taken that place, right? And they yeah. don't really do the slapstick funny guy yeah. stuff. I don't know if, like, does, do the Adam Sandler movies count as funny guy comedies? Because he's, he's pretty down to earth in those for the most part. But the people around him are usually very big personalities. Like, if you look at something like The Ridiculous Six, mm-hmm. which, looking at IMDb, Chris Kattan appeared in. Yeah. Uh, they're very, like, big and slapsticky. Yeah, and that's why I don't think Adam Sandler qualifies, because most of the funny guy comedies, it's basically just one guy who's funny. And everybody's deadpan around that comedian. Yeah. If you're wondering, Corky Romano, if we haven't indicated yet, it's terrible. Oh, oh my god. Yeah. Well, one of the opening scenes, Corky is uh, the assistant vet uh, <laughs> at at a veterinary service called, what's it called? Poodles and Pussies? It's poodles and Pussies, which they say like a dozen times. And it j- just keeps getting funnier. Um... <laughs> And the the head vet leaves the place in Corky's charge, and this is one of those things where you watch movies sometimes, and you go, "How has these characters existed in anything but the continuum, which are these ninety minutes?" Yeah, well, there's this painful scene where Corky is like, you know, of course he crashes into everything, and all the animals get everywhere, but it's like there's no logic to why he's crashing into everything. He just like he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" He's like bouncing all over the room. It's just not funny. But, you know, there's still moments that me and Will kind of laughed uncontrollably. <laughs> like when Koki Romano gets a brick of cocaine. And me and Will <laughs> just sat on the edge of our seats being like, I cannot wait until that cocaine blows in his face. Well, then he, he walks and he sees like a, a drug sniffing dog. And he leans over and says, oh, hello, puppy. Hello, puppy. And we're like, okay. <laughs> and I was like, I really hope. <laughs> I really hope that the thing of cocaine is going to explode in both Quirky and the dog's face. And the dog's going to get a CGI reaction shot where he's like, Whoa. And sure enough, we did. Except it was a puppet reaction no, shot. It was the dog. It was the, the oh, dog okay. and the CGI's kind of got bigger on it on the dog and Corky Romano. Well, and then the camera cuts back to Corky's face and he's got coke all over and he's got this massive grin. He looks like the Jack Nicholson Joker. And then it cuts to another scene where now that Corky, who's already pretty kinetic as it is, has to deliver a speech to like some grade schoolers 
And he just, you know, starts riffing on stage like he's like 80s Robin Williams. And it just goes on and on. There's and, no jokes. And I'm watching this thinking, did he improvise this or was this written? He must have. We uh, did some research on the film and we discovered that it was actually the result of an impending actor strike that was going to happen. Yeah, it says on IMDb, uh, the reason the film was made was because there was an act- actor strike that was going to happen in September 2000. So it was written in 10 days in May filmed in June, and wrapped in August, which was unheard of for a studio film. And you can tell watching the film. Uh, who is the director? He's uh, a, a real big name, isn't he? Yeah, the director of the film, who has no other credits before Corky Romano, and is a man named Rob Pritz. Yeah. And afterwards, directed two short films ten years later. There's a picture on IMDb of him directing Chris Kattan. Yeah, and he's doing, he's doing the screen <laughs> thing with his fingers that directors do. Now... Do you think that the people on set thought this was a funny movie, or you think it was just a product? I, th- I think it was just a product. Well, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes when you're creating something, like anybody who's been in a school play or has seen something like that knows that, like... If when you're, you're doing it, it's you're, funny. Yeah, or you enter an alternate reality. We don't know that. Maybe because Chris Kattan was riffing all the time, it was really funny because it came out of nowhere. Yeah. And you were like, oh, I didn't expect that in this scene. Oh, another thing about the movie, this is off topic, but there are a lot of scenes with Richard Roundtree as like the head of police and a lot of scenes where he's talking to Chris Kattan, but I don't think we ever see them in the same shot together. I noticed one two shot where they were together. Okay. I feel like Richard Roundtree is probably someone that went, I can't put up with this fucking comedian's bullshit. Yeah. Like Tommy Lee Jones with Jim Carrey in yeah. uh, Batman Forever. Now, we, uh, we watched a lot of movies this week to discuss. But finally, we've come to the ultimate film that I think was the thing that set off this discussion in the first place. Well, this is another movie that's, you know, in the funny guy genre, but also I think owes a debt to Adam Sandler because it's about a a sociopath with impulse control problems like Happy Gilmore. Uh, The movie is called Freddy Got Fingered. A 2001 film that was the starring and directorial debut of a Mr. Tom Green. Canadian treasure, if you will. When I was a kid, Tom Green was one of those figures in the culture who was kind of like Marilyn Manson, where... He was t- so extreme. Was so, Your parents were like, don't watch Tom Green. Yeah, exactly. He And he just seemed to be regarded as like the decline of Western civilization. I think this movie is just like... Criminally funny. (laughs) I laughed all the way through it. I I, I mean, basically, it's just Dadaist, like, surrealist bullshit. Like, this is a movie where in the second scene, Tom Green is driving a car (laughs) down a highway. He sees, like, what is it, a cow being... No, it's a a horse with its its huge cock out. And then he, like, points at it, and then he, like, slams on the brakes. He runs over and he starts jerking off the cow. Uh, And then the next scene after that is he's working on an assembly line at, like, a sausage factory. Cheese factory. Cheese factory. Okay, but then for no reason, he stands on the assembly line, grabs a sausage, holds it over his dick, and says, (laughs) I'm a sexy boy! (laughs) Ding dong! Now, he is an aggressively sociopathic figure in this movie, which I think makes it extra funny, because it's not like Chris Kattan being, like, wacky in a scene. It's very destructive and pointed in the way that he kind of lets loose this arsenal of him being wacky. and Well, there's no kind of, like, guiding logic behind Corky Romano. He'll, He'll basically just, like, do whatever he needs to do for that scene. There's no real character there. With this one, it's basically... Taking it's like taking somebody like Ace Ventura, okay, mm-hmm. and saying Ace Ventura is a sociopath and narcissist, somebody who destroys everywhere he goes, and then actually like following that to its logical conclusion. <laughs> Even though that the movie starts in a way where we meet G- Gordy's family. <laughs> That's his name. Yeah, <laughs> his name is not Freddy. Freddy is the name. Well, we'll get to that a little <laughs> bit later. It's kind of implied that Gordy is a good son that his parents, played by a maniac Rip Torn. Rip Torn, like, giving it his all. He is so committed to this role. <laughs> that he's, like, their number one son. Yeah. Oh, and Julie Haggerty as his mother. That's uh, right. Who is, like, touching, I think. Like, she's she's very earnest in the film. Yeah. I mean, everybody usually around um, Tom Green is very playing it fairly straight, except yeah. for Rip Torn, yeah. who's just, like, ripping up the sand shoot <laughs> the scene. Oh, my God. I know, I know the scene. <laughs> Where it's after Tom Green has accused him of child molestation. That's why the movie's called Freddy Got Fingered. Yeah. The- because Tom Green accuses his father of sexually molesting his little brother. Uh, so the title is bluntly literal. <laughs> and so so then later, uh, Rip Torn... In a, Sorry, in I'm a, just thinking 
thinking of after he accuses him of molestation she jumps out the window <laughs> slow motion screaming and runs off never to look back on it again but his brother is brought to a home for sexually molested children yeah. so then so then rip torn in a drunken rage confronts <laughs> Tom Green at his house and oh you wanna fuck me do you? Yeah because Tom he, Green goes fuck you dad. He, then he pulls down his pants Rip Torn like bears his ass and starts waving it around and says ah oh, fuck me fuck me and then Tom Green it's the only moment when Tom Green like is normal in the movie he says it's like reacting to a situation like a real person like would. dad what what are you doing? Yeah. Um, so, okay so that sounds awful. <laughs> but it's really But funny. I gotta tell you like I, I, I mean that sounds like it's out of some like really dark like fast finder film of some kind or like if you approach this movie as you know it, it's taking the funny guy comedy to its lunatic extreme yeah and also as a movie that's kind of anticipating you know something like uh, tim and eric mm-hmm. um it was five years too soon i mean when this movie came out it received reviews like you would think tom green was a nazi war criminal i mean it was just like it was so hated roger ebert wrote a review zero stars where he says this may be the movie that he hates the most in the world really well he said in the review though at the end he says you know but this may become a classic down the line well he said the the day may come when this movie is considered a dadaist masterpiece the day may never come when it's seen as funny that, that, he's wrong on uh, well, that count. But, but I mean, at least yeah, a, a year later when Tom Green was in the movie Saving Harvard, uh, Roger Ebert actually mentioned Freddie Got Fingered in his review. And he said, okay, Freddie Got Fingered, bad movie. But here's the thing. It was ambitious, and I remember it. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> there's, a, there's a scene where famed funny guy uh, comedian who also failed. Uh, Harlan Williams. Plays Tom Green's best friend. And he, Tom Green goads him into skateboarding on his ramp. <laughs> Harlan Williams falls and breaks his leg in the most horrifying way. Just brutally graphic. And then Tom Green just starts licking the bone. <laughs> and Rip Torn just comes out and starts yelling at him. And what feels like a mistake that they kept in, um, Rip Torn starts yelling, Get a job! Get him a job! Wait, no! You need to get a job! Get him an ambulance! The movie just like keeps finding like ridiculous things to put in it. Like, there's a scene when uh, he's Tom Green is working at a sandwich shop, and it just cuts to him like aggressively sniffing on a jalapeno pepper. <laughs> yeah. For no reason. <laughs> yeah. And, and then a guy comes in and says, there's no cheese on my sandwich. And, and Tom Green goes, oh, you want cheese on your sandwich? And he just starts packing cheese on the sandwich. And the guy says, what am I supposed to do with this? And Tom Green says, maybe you could stick it in your bum bum. <laughs> just awful behavior. Like, we made a jokes about when Corky Romano was being filmed, if people kind of laughed. And I feel like they probably did. But on Tom Green's set, I wonder if it was just dead silence. I watched this movie. I've seen this movie. This is my third time seeing it. Um, So I thought maybe I would watch it with the commentary track that's on the DVD. That's the audio from the premiere. Mm -hmm. So you hear their reaction. I was kind of hoping it would be like when Stravinsky unveiled the Rite of Spring and people started like throwing rocks at the stage. But no, it was like for the first half of the movie, there's a lot of laughter. And then it kind of like dies down except for the scene when you know tom green jacks off a camel (laughs) an elephant i mean that had a big reaction well tom green only put that audio track because as he says in his autobiography hollywood gave me cancer that everybody hated the movie and he wanted to prove to people that audiences laughed at it when it played yeah something that should be noted is that tom green at one point in his life was the most paid actor in Hollywood for the least amount of work. Because I think he has a cameo in Charlie's Angels that's maybe a minute long. Yeah. And he got paid, like, millions of dollars for it. That was the time when he was uh, famously engaged to Drew Barrymore. Who makes... I think they got married. Oh, yeah? Okay, yeah. well, she makes an appearance in Treddy Got Fingered as well. I've God, from from what heights he fell? Um, like, well, Freddie Got Fingered was pretty much it for him. Like, that was his big shot. Yeah, kind of he made, like, the- one or two other movies after, but nothing notable. Um, I think it's important to remember that when this movie came out, it was coming after, like, There's Something About Mary. Mm-hmm. It was part of this whole wave of movies that were, like, the gross-out comedies. It wasn't perceived by most critics as a neo-Dadaist No, it was provocation. probably just shelved into those, oh, it's like uh, Saving Silverman or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and also, like, Tom Green was basically a disreputable figure because he had an MTV prank show, and he's an unpleasant man. <laughs> like, he's not a guy you want to hang out with. The DVD uh, has, as an extra, his appearance on the Mike Bullard show for 
anyone who doesn't know, Mike Bullard was a Canadian talk show host who forgot the sands of time. <laughs> yeah, um, and Tom Green made a lot of appearances, and on one of the appearances, he brought a, a like a piece of roadkill, like a dead raccoon. That's that, one of his most famous moments that he just put on Bullard's desk, and Bullard actually had to leave and throw up. <laughs> Well, you know, Tom Green would go on after his career kind of faltered to make an internet talk show that he filmed in his house and he just streamed on his website. It was like the proto-podcast. Yeah, it, it was the WTF with Mark Maron of its time. Except it, not popular. Uh, I, I remember at the time reading articles about it, the tone of them were always like, Tom Green is doing a talk show. What a loser! In his house! Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, ahead of his time. Going back to my college years, I had a friend called Corey who, you know, he was a boy that grew up around Ottawa where Tom Green was. And Tom Green had been in the exact same program that I was in at Algonquin College. We had the same teachers that Tom Green had. Wow. And they said that Tom Green was crazy when he was doing stuff. He would like hang off the, um, the, uh, the lighting gear and stuff like that and just try to make people laugh. But my friend Corey decided, I'm going to go meet Tom Cruise. Uh, Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go meet Tom uh, Green in L.A. So he made a little documentary for School Project where he went to L.A., skateboarded everywhere, racked up a $1,000 debt on his cell phone. <laughs> and Tom Green let him stay in his house for a week. I'm, I'd like to know more about Tom Green as a person. I know very little about him. I mean, I think he's got a like have some guiding intelligence there i mean he's oh he definitely like like watching freddie got fingered it's clearly the work of like you know a madman somebody who's like this weird like tasteless fountain of creativity but i think that it's a little bit more focused that a lot of people give it credit for it is and there are things there are touches in the movie like towards the end i know you love this scene i love it so much so so there's a whole ridiculous subplot when you know he gets paid a million dollars for one of his animation ideas and he spends all the money on transporting his father's house to pakistan based on one throwaway line that rick torn (laughs) says which is if you were in pakistan you'd be making um footballs when you were four years old and then and then eventually you know they get kidnapped by terrorists and then Finally, they come back home, and first of all, you see somebody in the crowd welcoming them, holding a sign that says, when the fuck is this movie going to end? (laughs) Because Tom Green knows that he's purposely wearing you down at this point. And, like, the ending is such a non-sequitur. Like, it's it's nothing. It ends with Tom Tom Green. I almost said Tom Cruise. Uh, (laughs) It ends with Tom Green. You know, many people get both of them confused. (laughs) It ends with Tom Green being, like, shepherded into a police car, and then there's there's a pause as... It freezes on his face, and the American flag appears behind him. Like, like only a genius could make a shot like that. You know, I feel like someone like Paul Thomas Anderson should take Tom Green and put him in a dramatic performance. Oh, yeah. Because I think he has it in he him. He deserves a comeback. I, you know, in a way, I'm sort of glad this was his only big movie. I know he directed a movie later called Bob the Butler, which I've never seen, but is kind oh, of... Did he direct it? I think so, yeah. Oh, it was his Jerry Lewis-style bellboy? Yeah, and I mean, I've never seen it. I'm not really interested in it. I feel like once you've made Freddy Got Fingered, where can you go? Yeah, like that's it, right? <laughs> yeah. You have given your artistic, I don't know, monument? Yeah, or... like this is the movie that most artists, their careers build up towards. And he just got it all out of the way. Actually, Freddy Got Fingered was the only film he ever directed. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so that's it. Well, that's fine, you know? Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, and, and also, I feel like this movie comes at a very specific moment. Like, it comes at a moment when he's, you know, a huge deal. He was able to leverage all of his capital, all of his audience goodwill into creating this massive provocation. You know, he was at the height of his creative power. I'm not sure, I'm not sure the the juices, the mojo would ever be flowing again the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you give it your all and you make a classic piece. And even though that everybody hates it, hates it. Well, I also feel like more and more people are rediscovering this film, though. Oh, absolutely. Like, in a post-Tim and Eric world, we are ready for this movie. (laughs) Yeah, finally. Yeah. Okay, so while me and Will would love to talk about comedians till the cows come home, we already made a list that if we were going to do another episode, who would be on it? Yeah. Uh, I think that'll have to be it for Tom Green. But do we have any letters? Uh, We do. We have one letter from Mark Slutsky. Hopefully I'm oh, saying that I, name I, right. I know Mark Slutsky. Yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, no, someone you know. We want ra- random people. I'm we totally... had random people. Well, not random people. Beloved listeners uh, a few times uh, before. But this is somebody who I've met. Yes. And Mark goes, Hello, Important Cinema Club. I've been listening to and enjoying your podcast for some time now. It is very good. Thank, Thank you, you, Mark. 
I have an episode request. This is a filmmaker who loomed large in my consciousness as a young aspiring cineast and who seemed like one of the breakout indie stars of the late 80s and 90s who has largely disappeared from the conversation in recent years. Decades, really. The filmmaker is Hal Hartley. I rarely see him cited by critics or filmmakers. For someone with such a signature style, he seems to have virtually no descendants or directors who claim his influence. And for someone who was so celebrated alongside the likes of Jarmusch, Linklater, Tarantino, Kevin Smith, etc. in the 90s, he might as well have just never existed. He seems to be making new films and funding them on Kickstarter. But is anybody watching? No. I don't think so, no. Please help me come to terms with this. Mark. Well, Mark... Um, following your thesis, no, we. Do, I'm not very familiar I, with I've, Hal Hartley. I think I, I know who he is. Yeah, I've only seen one of his films, and I can't even remember which one it was. I didn't like it. Mm. Um, I, I think I was didn't, it like Trust or uh, one of his. It was. It wasn't Trust, but it was one of the early ones. I wish. I, was it Nowhere? Did he make that, or was that? No, Greg you're Araki? thinking of somebody. That's Greg Araki. Yeah. Who made Nowhere. Um, oh fuck! I don't know. I saw it at the. Uh, I saw it at the Royal like a year or two ago. Oh no! Then you saw because um, Aubrey Plaza starred in it, right? No, no, that... no. It was. It was. They did a mini retrospective of his Golden Age. Anyway, I didn't really like it. It had. I didn't like it. Kind of for the same reason that I don't like uh, the guy who did Metropolitan, uh, Witz Dillman. Yes, it has this kind of like. Uh, aggressive cleverness this uh mm. is very affected um i'm not saying no to hal hartley though because i'm actually curious about him uh, you know it would be interesting to do hal hartley in the context of kind of 90s directors who seemed like a big deal at the time and have faded yeah. from public view yeah um because i have i have a book on hal hartley i picked up a long time ago but i've seen almost none of his movies well the people who like hal hartley like he was very important to them mm. um i can't i don't It'd be de- very important to kevin smith he yeah. said that hal hartley is the only person he's ever asked for an autograph for and supposedly Hartley was a huge dick to him oh well rightly so um, <laughs> he knew he saw it in the future but I don't really detect Hartley's footprint you know outside of his own films I don't know maybe on Kevin Smith yeah who knows um, but yeah I'm, I'm curious I want to know what's there mm-hmm. so maybe someday yeah well put it in the box yeah Hal Hartley it's in there all right so next week we're gonna speaking of uh, 90s directors who have failed <laughs> whoa, oh, whoa whoa harsh harsh Right. We're going to be talking about CanCon. I don't know. Legend? Legend, yeah. Adam McGoyan. I, you know, I shouldn't say failed because he made a lot of interesting movies when, mm-hmm. he was, when he was younger and a lot of not so interesting ones lately. Yeah. So we're going to be watching one of his most famous interesting, in quotation marks, because I haven't seen it. And Will's a little afraid of reapproaching it. Yeah. Exotica. I'm concerned it won't hold up, but mm. uh, Exotica. And probably uh, rem- remember the, yeah. his most recent one with Christopher Plummer as a Nazi hunter? Yes. The one, you make it sound much more exciting than it actually is. Yeah. The one where when I read the plot synopsis, I went, oh, is this how it ends? And someone went, yes. You know, I'm several movies behind on Adam and I used to see them all, but then um, Devil's Knot came out and I didn't see it. And I was like, I'm free. <laughs> Really? Yeah, actually. <laughs> oh, so you were like a hardcore, like, this guy's Canadian, I have to see his movies, is important. Well, well, also because I, I was a fan of him. Like, I liked yeah. The Sweet Hereafter mm-hmm. and Exotica and, and some of the early ones, like Calendar. But then, um, yeah, you know, I, there came a point after Where the Truth Lies and Adoration and Chloe. Like, you know, a few of these start piling up and you start to wonder, am I back on the wrong horse here? <laughs> All right, well, that's what we're going to do next week. Um, like I said, we're going to watch Exotica and Remember. Yeah. Remember Adam McGoy and how he used to be. Yeah. Okay, so my name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I am a sexy boy. Sexy, <laughs> sexy boy. Ding dong. <laughs> Send us your letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Me and Will had the pleasure of seeing Year of the Dragon in 70mm at the Lightbox. Yeah, uh, introduced by fan of the show Jesse Hawken. And if you don't know Year of the Dragon, it's the film from famed enfant terrible Michael Cimino, director of Heaven's Gate, The Deer Hunter. Um, Sun Chaser. <laughs> the Woody Harrelson classic. Yeah. The Sicilian was Christopher Lambert. Uh, uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And, uh, and that, that's all of his films, I think. Nope, there's one more that I don't remember what it is, but... His segment in Chacun Son Cinema. Yeah, like everybody had a segment in Chacun Son yeah. Cinema. So Year of the Dragon is this Mickey Rourke um, studio picture that Michael Cimino said, this one's for them. Mm-hmm. I make one for me, you, I make one for them. And the film is pretty crazy. 
You know, I went into this, I'd never seen it before. I went in thinking, you know, after Heaven's Gate, this would be like a, a little B movie. Uh, it would be, you know, very mainstream. Uh, nope. It, it's a massive, massive, it's like, sprawling film. It's 130 minutes, but I thought it was three hours when I it was over. Too. Like, it has scenes in Thailand. It, like, they built New York's Mott Street in North Carolina, I think, or maybe it was South Carolina. There are several, though, you know, key location shoots in New York that are just like, you know, enormous. Like he always manages to frame the twin towers. You mm-hmm. know, in in every scene. And Mickey Rourke is giving a committed performance as a forty-five-year-old Vietnam veteran, played by a twenty-year-old Rourke, <laughs> twenty-nine. But he's an old twenty-nine. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's fair to say. Uh, he, who has, um, you know, they age him up a little bit by throwing some flower at his hair, yeah. give him some white streaks. I mean, he's he's awful. Yeah, his character is awful. Rourke, I think, acts the hell out of it. But everybody's always telling him that he's awful as well they're like you're racist you're this you're that but you still feel like the audience should be getting behind him and being like you know keep going and do it jesse was making a point yesterday that he thinks that michael cimino really identified with this character it's like he's working through all of his uh hassles with the studio heads and you know the critics who don't understand him and everything because rourke's character in the film just wants to take down the chinese mafia and those stuffy police shirts won't let him do it but he's a a truly they keep saying he's a good cop but he's an awful cop he's He's he's, never indicated of doing anything good he's corrupt he gets everyone close to him killed or raped Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah he's he's very selfish (laughs) yes we don't we, we don't even know why he wants to bring down this this syndicate it's seems to basically just be a matter of pride by the end of the film mm-hmm. uh, where he does the awesome action movie hero thing where he just bursts into the villain's lair to grab the villain and beat him up yeah it's a beautiful looking film though i mm-hmm. mean oh my oh my god uh the action scenes are just insane well uh, there's not many of them but when they happen it's that heaven's gate kind of mayhem going on screen yeah. where there's always something in frame to catch your attention whether it's mickey work like kicking open doors and they smash when they uh, or when he fly. like drags out a body from a burning car yelling it's evidence <laughs> yeah so is it a good movie is the question i don't think it really matters um i think you know it's got great stuff in it i think it's got horrible stuff in it but like i wouldn't change it you as know? an artifact of its time blown yeah. up to 70 millimeter in front of us it's a it's a movie like i remember seeing uh showgirls in a theater mm-hmm. Uh, which is also a, a problematic film, but it's one where like it benefits from being seen in a theater because like you have to be overwhelmed by it for every it time impact. There was an action scene in Year of the Dragon. It just kind of like blew you back in the seat of how yeah. loud it was, yeah, and how like cacophonous. Which is funny when we live in an age of like Michael Bay action yeah. films where we're numb by that. That a movie can still do it, and the movie has no irony. It, it has. It's just like has this. What in- do you mean? Oliver Stone wrote something that has no irony. <laughs> well, it's just like incredibly intense throughout. It has this tone that never lets up, and Rourke is so aggressively macho. He, he has a presence that just like suffocates you it, like being trapped in a theater with this movie uh it's like there's no relief <laughs> but one of the most interesting things about the viewing experience is that we learn that jesse hawken is obsessed with year of the dragon now jesse hawken is a funny guy just like will sloan is on twitter oh thank you which is he makes a lot of jokes where you're like are these jokes? <laughs> so when he says, like, I'm obsessed with Year of the Dragon, you go, oh, okay, we get it. You're obsessed. But man, Jesse brought out the scrapbook that he had when he was a kid and he saw the movie. And oh boy. Well, it, the Diary of a Madman, if I mean, you will. It, I mean, it's a beautiful book that he made. This is what people did before the internet, clearly. Mm-hmm. Like, he's got, like, flow charts of the character relations, the continuity errors. He's got a page of, like, all the times he saw the movie. Twelve times. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Was there anything like that when you were a kid that you were, like, obsessed with? And we've talked about that you used to collect your ticket stubs and stuff. Oh, yeah, I did that. You know, I used to, like, cut out newspaper movie reviews. Yeah. Where would you put them? I I put them in a scrapbook. You still have that scrapbook? Probably somewhere. You want some vintage Peter Howell? Because I can (laughs) can show it to you. I remember... In class, we would get the newspaper uh, every day during some free period, and I would always get it and flip to the back of the movie reviews and just read what whatever the film critic in the Ottawa Citizen had to yeah. say about films like Jason X. <laughs> I never ripped them out. I was never much of a collector. Yeah. But going to the theater for me was also a really big deal because 
we didn't I lived in a small town where I didn't have a car and there was no movie theaters there. So when we go it was like we go into the movie theater. Yeah. And I remember as a kid I would get really nervous and like have to go pee. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. It's just a thing you do where it's like a big event and you don't know what to do. Because you're scared. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know like I'm scared of like I don't know what the Lion King's gonna hold for. Me. <laughs> But I don't think there was any... I'm trying to think of a movie that I got, like, obsessed with where I followed it, like, regularly. Uh, I don't know if there was a movie I... I mean, there... Uh, Jim Carrey. I mean, we talked about movies that I loved as a yeah. kid that I saw a million Batman. times. Ba- Batman. But, like, I don't know. Did I have like, scrapbooks about over them? Or, like, a Year of the Dragon-style, like, obsession with a film? I don't think they're really... I mean, uh, like, every kid has Star Wars. Yeah. I know a film that I have seen more films than any in my entire life. The only VHS my babysitter had, and we would be there every day during the summer, and we would go, what do you want to do? And I'd be like, I want to watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Not the first, not the second, the third Indiana Jones film. I must know that film frame by frame by heart. Oh, I think I know what I was obsessed with. I was obsessed with the Mystery Science Theater episode of Mitchell with Joe Don Baker. <laughs> that episode is so mean. Yeah, that's that's why I loved it. I used to like, like I used to write like like when I was in grade seven, like sequel movie scripts for Mitchell. Yeah. Or uh, I, I used to like draw like ridiculous pictures of Mitchell. Actually, like, you talking about that just... Like, a spark of memory just appeared in my mind of a movie that I was obsessed with. Mm -hmm. You know those channels you could go to and it'd be, like, pay-per-view and they play the ads over and over again? Oh, I saw those. Yeah, you you watched these too? (laughs) Yeah. There was a commercial for two things. Bound and Bordello of Blood. Oh, shit. I saw those commercials. And I was obsessed with them. Okay. I could not... Like, I was so excited to rush home okay. and watch those no, commercials. No, I had the exact same experience with those two commercials. This is the Viewer's Choice Pay-Per-View <laughs> yes, Network. That's what yeah. it is. Okay, uh, those two... Okay, Bound and Bordello of Blood looked so grown up. It did. They looked like, transgressive. I wrote a faux novelization of Bound <laughs> that my mom still has. I saw it last time I went. And the cover is two guys jumping off... Remember the bridge? And they were handcuffed <laughs> together and that was a big oh, moment? Oh, th- that's, that's Fled with uh, Stephen oh, Baldwin. Fled? Oh, Fled. Yeah, that's yeah. the one I'm thinking of. Not yeah. Bound. Fled. Yeah. But I think those two played like back-to-back together. Yeah, Fled was on all the time. And also uh, Rumble in the Bronx was <laughs> on that channel a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think The American President too. But I wasn't so crazy about that one. <laughs> I couldn't... I, I don't know what... It was in my mind that I would, like, turn on Viewer's Choice pay-per-view, and I would put up, like, my nose to the screen just to take it all in. Yeah. The idea of seeing these movies was something so foreign, like, something that seemed like it was never going to happen, because, yeah. like, how would I see them? There's, they were so R-rated. Yes. Like, they, they had that, like, texture and the taste of something that was R-rated and that I wasn't allowed to see. So just seeing the Bordello of Blood commercial or the Fled commercial or the Bound yeah. commercial a million times... I'm glad you had this experience, honestly, because <laughs> yeah. I thought I was alone. No, it, me yeah. and Will, hand in hand, probably at the same moment, watching oh the commercials for Fled and Bordello of Blood. What a wasted life. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't change it 